Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 15, the Battle of Lubito with Task Force Zulu, and a return to the Central Front where Task Force Foxbat have been fighting their way north. On the 7th of November 1975, Zulu's battle group Alpha was on the road to South Africa's next goal, Lubito. It's a bay just north of Benguela, which had been seized by the SADF and handed over to UNITA forces after a crucial fight for the airport. The MPLA's FAPLA had decided that Lobito would be too difficult to defend against a twin South African assault, Zulu approaching from the south and Foxbat from the east, so they decided not to defend this harbour town. Lobito is regarded as one of the most natural harbours in Africa, but was only developed at the start of the 20th century by the Portuguese, who had concentrated their development in Luanda to the north and Benguela to the south. Remember, Benguela was the terminal for rail traffic from Katanga in Zaire, and strategically vital. UNITA had been bombing the line for months, so by now, not much rolling stock was on the line. But the Portuguese had developed the Beta Harbour tying the copper districts of Zaire and Zambia directly to the Atlantic coast via Benguela. There were more than 73,000 people living in Lobito in 1970, which had also developed a thriving industrial zone that included boat building. The SADF rolled into Lobito on the same day, 7th of November, and the next day Task Group Zulu linked up with Task Group Foxbat, led by Eddie Webb. This was a big moment in the operation. The two South African task forces had been fighting apart from each other for almost a month, and now they shook hands at Lobito, then eyed Luanda, the capital, to the north. Foxbat had seen considerable fighting, as we've heard in the series already, starting in late October 1975. Fapla columns of varying strength had focused on the all-important Kubala crossroads, where Webb managed to deflect them, particularly around the town of Lumbala. It was south of Kela, where the advancing MPLA forces ran into Webb's forward elements, which then laid down a powerful artillery barrage, which failed to stop the South Africans. The death of a Cuban brigadier who led the advance, he was driving a civilian Citroen, he was hit by a 106mm recoilless gun, that had drained the energy out of the Fapla attack. Because Webb had taken the western route it had caused consternation in Luanda, the MPLA and the Cuban advisers were now fighting a war on two fronts, and this made it more difficult to ascertain what the ultimate aim of the South Africans was. And not to forget, of course, the FNLA under Roberto was busy in the north as well. Clearly Luanda would be a choice target, but just as clearly the SADF knew that the MPLA was beginning to gather powerful military resources at that point. Webb led Foxbat westwards again, trying to cut off the retreating Cuban and MPLA forces, now racing north, away from Task Force Zulu, which was moving inexorably northwards up the coast. It was a classic hammer and anvil moment and was successful. Webb held crossroads near the coast awaiting the MPLA forces and managed to cut off some FAPLA units. After the usual pleasantries between Colonel van Heerden of Task Force Zulu and Commandant Eddie Webb of Foxbat, they decided the best course was to split up once more. Foxbat returned to the central front and van Heerden's Zulu force continued up the coast. He was near the seaside town of Sumbe, when Independence Day dawned on the 11th of November 1975. The South Africans were supposed to wrap up their invasion of Angola on or before this day, but that had not happened. But on the day, the Portuguese High Commissioner Lionel Cortoso ended 500 years of Portuguese rule with a curt speech expressing regret that he could not celebrate the country's independence. That would also be impossible in a situation where Angola had now descended into a full-blooded civil war. On the same day, Cardoso was whisked to Luanda Harbour, where he boarded an awaiting warship and sailed back to Portugal. 
The former colonial masters had thrown up their hands and left as quickly as possible, which in our eyes in the 21st century appears almost discourteous. But remember, the Portuguese had experienced a military coup led by left-wing officers who were sick and tired of the drain on the country's resources as it fought independence movements in Portuguese Guinea, Angola and Mozambique. The latter two countries were far, far away from Portugal physically, and their own soldiers had questioned the logic of dying in these distant African nations for no apparent strategic gain at a time of post-colonial politics. It was also beginning to dawn on the South Africans that they had underestimated the vast expanse of Angola and just how long it would take to drive along sometimes poorly constructed roads, let alone fight through to the coastal towns. Now they had missed the all-important Independence Day deadline and should have been withdrawing rapidly out of the country. The National Party strategy had failed. They had been trying to secure the southern Angolan area while simultaneously trying to convince moderates inside the OAU to somehow agree to an alternative process of peacekeeping where the MPLA had already seized the initiative. They say that history is full of these what would have happened 2020 eyesight in retrospect kind of views, and yet we must ask why did the political leadership order the SADF to continue with attacks after the date of independence if the strategy was to use that day as the fulcrum to make further decisions? That was shooting itself in the foot strategically. It was fighting for fighting's sake, and they must have known this. Cuba had already thrown its weight behind the MPLA along with Russia, while the Americans were studiously avoiding direct intervention. they just left Vietnam, and that disaster meant that it would not be very forthcoming when it came to regional direct interventions. The Russians were on the ground along with hundreds of Cuban soldiers. The SADF knew this. What of the FNLA and United troops and their political leaders? There was an attempt, starting the 11th of November, to negotiate some kind of solution. As Willem Steenkamp explains in his excellent work South Africa's Border War 1966-1989, an official spokesman for government in Pretoria said, After mediation by go-betweens, the South African forces which comprised at that stage around 300 advisers, instructors and personnel, as well as weapons, remained in anticipation of a political solution, which was the prospect held out by the mediators. That was an almost psychotic misreading of the situation, I'm afraid. The Cubans and Russians were preaching armed resistance to colonial aggression and had put bodies on the ground to ensure the MPLA won the war. The South Africans were seen as colonial aggressors. No twisting of any truth could deem this otherwise, and any reading of it from here on saw the National Party fixating on ensuring that default back home supported them, so their external strategy always played second fiddle to this overriding internal political reality. As long as the voters thought they were doing the right thing, then they'd throw the SADF into further combat. So naturally, the prospect of mediation was pie in the sky, and the shaky armistice that began on the 11th of November lasted less than a day, and the SADF would be the target. Things were confusing. Holden Roberto's FNLA was stationed close to Luanda, and he had had a grandiose vision of riding into the city, having liberated it from both the Cubans and the MPLA. The only problem was, Roberto was taking his time, preparing for this supposedly triumphant return. He was based at Ambris, tantalizingly close to the capital, where the lights of Luanda were visible to his FNLA troops. He had spent three months fighting sporadically in a somewhat arbitrary way while maintaining his original plan of focusing on Luanda. Roberto's FNLA had achieved some kind of success through October, but they were then slowed by an unwillingness to commit to a full frontal attack before the 11th. Roberto had polished his plans for the attack that he eventually started too late, as we're going to hear next episode. Because he was refusing to coordinate attacks with UNITA and the South Africans, he doomed his own men. 
The biggest challenge Roberto faced was a lack of field commanders who had experience in leading men in a conventional attack. He had problems securing ammunition and fuel as well. Jonas Sabimbi of UNITA had recognized both weaknesses in his own army and relied on the South Africans for field commander knowledge, the so-called advisors and instructors. Roberto was a curious figure. He had an inflated sense of his own ability coupled with an arrogant streak, believing that the Congo royal family of which he was one had some sort of God-given advantage over everyone else. So he was winging it alone in this war. The SADF continued moving north on Independence Day, but when they arrived at the bridge over the Kwikombo River, they found it had been partially destroyed by the MPLA. And worse, Fapla's artillery sections had taken up positions on the high ground overlooking the road. And Ilant 90 was then hit by an RPG-7, wounding two of the soldiers inside. Alpha Battle Group were now in a spot of trouble. The wounded were removed, and the Ilant 90 was found to be only slightly damaged by the armor-piercing RPG. A group of sand soldiers, backed up by three armoured cars, rushed towards the area, but the Papla artillery had set up their positions, enabling them to sweep the road and approaches to the bridge with heavy fire. The South Africans then moved one of their own mortar sections into position with a view to returning fire, but before they could get a single round off, Fapla dropped a mortar right on top of the SADF position. Twenty men were wounded, eight critically, one later died in this single incident. The SADF had come to a grinding halt, but there was help at hand. Task Force Zulu had been bolstered by the arrival of three 25-pounder artillery pieces, along with more ammunition and food, flown into the airport now held by the South Africans just to the south. It was fortunate they did, because the fighting saw Fapla forces throwing everything they had at Commandant Delville Linford's Alpha Battle Group. Hours of artillery barrage with 122mm rockets and mortars passed, and Fapla was firing extremely accurately. That night, the medical teams worked swiftly to cope with the large number of South African wounded, and they were evacuated to Rundu by aircraft from a nearby grass airfield. The SADF 25-pounders were then rushed up the road and finally made contact with Linford's Alpha Group in the darkness. The commandant was relieved and he ordered Captain Bouvet and his artillery section to bivouac out of range of the Fapla guns. The next morning, the 25-pounders were placed on dead ground out of sight of Fapla's spotters. Then Bouvet and Linford searched for an area where they could set up their own observation post. By now, they were using MPLA surveillance photographs they'd found in Benguela, which helped as the South Africans began planning their counterattack on Fapla's artillery. The cannons opened fire a short while later, and after a few shots, the 25-pounders began to hit their targets. At the same time, Fapla opened fire with everything they had once more, and because they had ranged their weapons, this was going to be a close call. But they had no chance of hitting the South Africans' artillery, which systematically took out the enemy positions. Fapla then made the mistake of moving the 122mm rockets, and the SADF observation post could spot where they were firing each rocket because each one set up a cloud of dust and gave away its position. By midday, Fapla's artillery had been silenced. Commandant Breitenbach's battle group Bravo then arrived, along with Task Force Zulu leader Colonel van Jertlen, and the SADF began to move forward once more. First, they cleared the Fapla artillery positions, finding two bodies, but it was also clear that the enemy had lost far more men, with the discovery of many pools of blood, they had retreated, leaving most of the ammunition and heavy weapons behind. It was now the 13th of November, and Battle Group Bravo entered the coastal town of Sumbe, known as Novo Redondo in those days. Captain Bouvet's artillery based themselves along the side of the approach road when a strange sight greeted the South Africans. Dozens of prisoners had been released from Sumbe jail, and they began to run around the streets, clearly elated at their windfall. 
It's thought that most of these men were captured UNITA or FNLA soldiers. Meanwhile, FAPLA units withdrew northwards once more, now heading on the coastal road towards Luanda, which was around 230 kilometers away. And now the full extent of the Cuban support for the Angolans was becoming more visible. The South Africans knew that three ships had docked at Porta Amboim, a small port to the north of Sumba, carrying hundreds of Cuban soldiers and the latest Soviet hardware, including tanks. The ships, Coral Island, La Plata and Vietnam Heroica, had docked in October, giving the town's defenders more than enough time to prepare to meet the SADF. Colonel van Heerden was in a quandary. The road from Sumbe forked with one route leading eastwards to Kobala and the other northwestly hugging the coast, and this route led to Porto and Boim. He had to ensure that the threat posed by this powerful FAPLA army bolstered by Cubans could not be deployed should his force head eastwards and then take the main road towards Luanda. There was also a railway line linking Porto and Boim to Kubala, meaning the MPLA could move its material to defend either city quickly. Task Force Bravo was ordered to attack Porto and Boim and then withdraw southeasterly to join Alpha as they headed to Kubala on the Highland Main Road around 100 kilometers inland. One of the largest and most powerful flowing rivers lay in their path, and all roads northwards towards the capital, Luanda, had to cross this river. The Cuervo River was characterized by deep ravines and could not be crossed other than over a proper bridge. The South Africans had no way of fording the Cuervo should the bridges be blown, which is precisely what Fapla did. Battle Group Bravo and the three five-pounders made it as far as 15 kilometers from Porto Amboim when they arrived at the Cuervo River Bridge on the coastal road. The ground in this area is also swampy, while most of the river is dominated by deep ravines. A fast-flowing African river was going to prove to be a major problem for the SADF. Captain Dipponai and a company of FNLA infantry were sent forward to inspect the bridge. 500 meters south of the bridge, they were peppered by enemy mortars. By now, the all-important aerial photographs had run out, and Captain Bouvet was called in to target the mortars and 122mm rocket sections, which had also begun to fire on the South Africans. Bouvet was handed a standard roadmap printed by the Automobile Association to assist his spotters. Somehow, it took only four ranging shots to line up the 122mm rockets, but the Fapla and Cuban artillery were also finding the range of the South African artillery. A number of rockets landed less than 50 meters away from Commandant Breitenbach's armored car and troop carriers. A full-blooded artillery duel was now underway. Who would manage to maintain focus and strike first? It was now dusk, and the South Africans were unable to continue. The fire from Fapla was too heavy and too accurate. They withdrew to Sumbe, and a small detachment was sent along the main road to Gabela, which also meant crossing a bridge across the Cuervo River. And once more, the detachment reported back that the bridge had been destroyed, and Fapla had opened fire with heavy weapons the moment the South Africans had rounded the bend approaching the river. It was now the 14th of November, three days after the SADF were supposed to have left or shown signs of leaving Angola, and they were still more than 1,000 kilometers from the Southwest African border. Colonel van Yerden took stock of Task Force Zulu's position. He'd been stymied in the final push to Luanda. He had also lost touch with Task Force Foxbat, which had been inching its way north from further east under command of Eddie Webb. He sent Battle Group Alpha to follow a small dirt road, which they did for 160 kilometers. After two skirmishes with FAPLA units, they arrived at a tiny bridge over the Cuervo River, which had also been blown up. By the 16th November, Alpha was back in Sumbe. Back in Rundu, there were major moves afoot. 101 Task Force HQ had decided to take over control of all operations more directly. So late in the evening of the 19th November, 
Colonel van Yerden received an order to leave Alpha Group with two L-90s at Sumbe, while the rest of Zulu should withdraw to support Task Force Foxbat to the east. Three days later, a wary van Yerden led 500 troops into the town of Chela, where Brigadier Skuman had set up his headquarters. It was going to be a somewhat shocked Colonel van Yerden, whom along with Task Force Foxbat Commander Eddie Webb were going to be recalled, and it would be the end of their war. But that's for next episode. We'll also hear about the FNLA struggles in the north against the MPLA and Holden Roberto's failed attempt at riding triumphantly into Luanda. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of South African border wars. You can also contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, ata a proxima semana adieu.